So today is Sunday, December 10th, 2023. November has come and gone. That means that it's less than three months until the primaries, and in less than a year, we'll have another presidential election, and all your problems will be behind you. I hope you're laughing, because that statement is a joke, and there are people who live as if it's true. There are people who, maybe they don't say it out loud, but in their actions, in their emotions, or in their social media posts, they communicate, if only we got a a new candidate or a new party, if only someone new came to power, or if only the power remained as it is, my life would dramatically improve. It is a laughable statement. It is a pitiful statement. Because if your greatest hope in this life is tied to an election cycle, Your priorities are completely misaligned and your perception of reality has been greatly distorted. Connecting to that, we see the same kind of distortion every year at Christmas because the culture tells us that Christmas is a magical season of hope and love and peace and joy. But most of the time, those ideals aren't connected to or based In reality, we're told you need to have peace and love and joy and hope. And you say, well, why? Because it's a season of peace and hope and joy and love. Because that's what you see in the movies. Because that's what we see in the lives of little children who believe in fairy tales. There's nothing inherently wrong with emotion But as Christians, we have to recognize that true joy, true love, true peace, true hope, those are rooted in something much more significant than sentimentality. We celebrate Christmas, ultimately, not because we like snow, not because we like trees on our homes, not because we like presents, trees on our homes, lights on our homes, not because we like presents under a tree. We celebrate Christmas because it is a reminder of the most significant event in human history. To use the words of John, the word became flesh. The infinite and eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, came and didn't wrap himself in humanity. He became a man. This is literally, that event is literally the basis of our modern calendar. The coming of Jesus is not a fairy tale, and it's not simply a story about a sweet little baby and his poor parents in Bethlehem. We can't allow our hearts and the hearts of our children to place the story of Jesus at the same level of the fictional stories of a drummer boy or a talking snowman or a flying reindeer. The coming of Christ, this is the message of Christianity, Christ has come into the world and that is the central event in human history. And it's okay, it's appropriate for you to ask, why? Jesus was born and you can ask, well, so what? What does that mean? What is the significance of this birth? Why is the coming of Jesus such a big deal? I think the best way to answer that question is to understand the story of Christmas in light of the bigger story of mankind. And for that, we go back to the beginning. The full Christmas story started 
before an angel ever visited Mary, before an angel visited Zechariah. And the story of Christmas continues even past the resurrection. So for today and for the next three Sundays, Lord willing, we're going to be walking through the more complete story of Christmas. We're making our way to Bethlehem, but we're taking the long road. We're going to cover thousands of years in four weeks. But I think it will enable us to both understand and celebrate the significance of the birth of Christ. We want to know the whole story. We want to preach the whole story. So with that, I invite you to take your Bible and go to page one. I imagine it's page one. You might have some introductory matters. But likely, page one is Genesis chapter one, verse one. A verse I think many of you are familiar with. The opening verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A statement like that very simply tells us that this world is not eternal. This earth has not been here forever. The only eternal and uncreated thing in the universe is God. And he is the one who made everything that exists, whether we see it or not. And there are people, rightfully so, I think there's a healthy kind of theological curiosity who ask, well, what was happening before the beginning? The Bible only gives us hints about that, but we know there was and always has been an eternal God who is, we now know, triune, three in one. You had the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they lived in perfect love, and they lived in infinite glory, but for his own glory, God created the universe. That's Genesis chapter one. He takes six days intentionally. He creates light and energy. He creates space and our atmosphere. He creates the oceans. He creates dry land. He creates vegetation like trees and flowers. He creates the planets and the stars. He creates the sun and the moon. He creates the animals that live and swim in the sea. He creates the animals that fly in the sky. And he creates all the animals that move along the land. And God said that it was good. But the greatest and, and the, the culminating act of creation was the last one. God did something special and something unique for his own glory. So look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Again, familiar passages, but this is the beginning. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. <clears throat> Verse 27. So... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So for the final act of creation, we get insight into what God was thinking. God, who is the king of all creation, decided that for his glory, he would allow this planet 
to be ruled by royal beings who represent him on the earth. That's what it means to be human. Kids, adults, men, women, young, old, all of us are made in the image of God. We were placed here to reflect and to magnify the God who made us. Sometimes when you put the word image in Bible or Christian language, we forget, but it's, it's a word we use. What, did, what does image mean? It means something that resembles or represents something else. You might have in your house Christmas ornaments with photos in them, or I'm sure you have photos on the wall somewhere. That's an image. It, it is intended to direct your mind or your attention to the person whose likeness is shown. Well, God decided that his eternal and infinite kingdom over all the universe would be represented through an earthly kingdom, a world that is ruled by mankind acting as God's representatives. So if you want to know what God is like, you were to look at humanity and see the heart of God in the way that mankind relates to the world and to one another. We were made in his image, in his likeness. As we continue the story, I want to highlight some key components or themes. We're going to see this throughout as we walk through the, through the story. But the first theme, I'm going to just simply as a heading, is the design of mankind. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 1, and it's what we want to keep in mind as we work through the story. God made man with a design. He gave man a purpose. Today, people have their own way of answering the question, what's the purpose of life? Some people just don't like to think about that at all. But even if it's not spoken, most people's purpose in life is just minimize hard times, minimize inconveniences, minimize difficulty, and maximize enjoyment, maximize fun, maximize entertainment. That's my purpose. But God has given us a much greater calling. We were created and have been called by God to represent him on the earth. When Adam was in the garden and he, had, he was placed there to work, to cultivate it, everything that he did to organize, to keep it, to tend it, is to reflect the glory of God. Humanity gives glory to God as the world flourishes and prospers. God is to be glorified in marriage He's glorified in family. He was to be glorified in all the wonderful aspects of culture and society. Mankind was called to represent God on the earth. That's the design. In Psalm 8, David humbly reflects on God's power and man's position in creation. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. He's saying, who are we compared to all these great things in the universe? Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. 
You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the majesty of God over the earth is shown through man who exercises dominion. When you clean your room, when you water your grass, when you train your dog, you are expressing the glory of God. We were given authority over the planet to reflect the love and the character of God. And God sets that up, and the final verse of Genesis 2, which is verse 25, says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We rightfully so understand that literally, But in a figurative sense, it also expresses that they were without sin. They were completely innocent. There was no relational or emotional barrier between them. They were ready as the first married couple to live out their calling as God's perfect representatives. And it would be nice if the very next verse says, and they lived happily ever after, filling the earth and subduing it for the glory of God. That's not what it says. And that's not what happened. And this brings us to a second theme we see in the story of mankind. We want to keep in mind the design of man, the the purpose God gave us. But secondly, we want to also remember the downfall of man. There's sin frustrating the design. There's a problem. We only come to the third chapter of the Bible and we see that mankind is not able to live up to his calling. Satan comes in the form of a serpent. He's the enemy of God. He deceives the woman. She disobeys God. The man follows her. And sin comes into the world. God's design was rejected. God's instruction was ignored. And this rebellion against the design of God brings disastrous consequences. It leads between the man and the woman. It leads to an alienation from God. They hide from him. They blame one another. There's a broken relationship between them. And God pronounces a curse upon the world. Their design, the calling on their life to fill the earth and to subdue it would no longer be characterized by joy and ease. When your dog doesn't do what you tell him to do, it's because of the curse. The world is now characterized by difficulty and sorrow and pain. Submitting to your husband is going to be painful. Loving and leading your wife is going to be painful. Having children, raising children, it's going to be painful. Growing crops, cultivating crops, providing for your home is going to be painful. And rather than live forever in perfect joy and unity with God, mankind is going to face death. That's the physical picture of the downfall of man. Romans 5 says it like this. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And death came through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then the apostle Paul says, death reigned. So death is an infection. It came into humanity, but it came through the wound of sin. As a result, it's no longer mankind who rules over the earth. Death rules over the earth. 
the kingdom that God designed is broken. In terms of a computer, the, the, the code, there's bugs in the code. We, we can no longer live up to our original design, and this is a situation we find ourselves in even today. This world, you have to know, you turn on the news, you're watching the news, whatever, this world is messed up in all sorts of ways. We have physical diseases, they bring pain, ultimately they bring death, we have aging bodies, we have droughts, we have famines, we have nations going to war with nations, and on a more personal basis, we have interpersonal relationships and conflicts. Think back to the purpose, the design that God has given us. Think back to your own life. Are you perfectly fulfilling your calling as a royal representative of God's love and character and holiness? Is that perfectly displayed in your life? Are those ideals upheld in your sexual purity? Are they upheld in your relationship with your wife or with your husband? Are they upheld in the way that you raise your children? Older siblings, are they upheld in the way that you treat your younger siblings? Are they upheld, the younger siblings, in the way you treat your older siblings? What about the way you interact or treat your neighbors or your coworkers or your boss or your family? As royal representatives of God, are you perfectly showcasing the holiness and the love and the heart of God? I know the answer already. It's the same answer for all of us. The answer is no. You are a horrible human being. That sounds harsh. But when you think about what our calling is as humans... And the fact that we don't live up to the purpose and the design that God gave us, it's appropriate. I am a horrible human being. If I grab a knife in my kitchen and it's dull and it doesn't cut, I got to fix it somehow. Throw it away, get a new one, or sharpen it. It's a horrible knife. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And that's what's happened with mankind. The image of God, as, as, as many have put it, has been marred. The photo, we could say, has faded. I know who the photo is supposed to be of, but it doesn't do, you know, if someone else came in, they don't know who it is. The contours of the statue have eroded. They've rubbed off. Mankind can no longer perfectly fulfill the design God gave him. To use the words of Romans, we are, we have fallen from the glory of God. And the result is our downfall. The result is the judgment of God. We have physical judgment in death. We have eternal judgment in hell. But when God cursed the man and the woman and the earth, he also pronounced a curse upon the serpent. And this curse would come in the form of a prophecy. This leads us to the third theme in the full story of Christmas, and that is the deliverance of man. So God gave man a design. Man, because of Satan, brought a downfall. But God promises a deliverance. God gives words of hope. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. These are the words of God to Satan, the serpent of old. 
God says, I will put enmity, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In a literal sense, you're going to have opposition between literal snakes and people. They walk and they're attacked. But broadening that out, God is saying that from that day forward, there is going to be a constant struggle between the children of God and the children of Satan. But one day, through the woman, a man will come into this world who will be attacked and afflicted by Satan, but he will bruise Satan's head. He will deliver a mortal blow. In other words, this coming offspring of the woman will bring a decisive victory against Satan. Satan brought the curse on this world and on mankind, but one day a man, the seed of the woman, will destroy him. This becomes the true and enduring hope of mankind, and it started with Adam and Eve. They have their first son in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And Eve responds with optimism. She says, Genesis 4.1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Just think, before that time, every single human being on the planet, which was only two, was created personally and directly by God. But now a, a third human comes into the world, but it comes from the woman. And it sets the pattern for many more children to come. Which of these sons, which seed would be the promised deliverer, the promised rescuer? We know it wasn't Cain. That was Eve's first son. He turns out to be a murderer. Then you jump to Genesis chapter 5, and you read the book of the generations of Adam, and it goes down the list of Adam's sons and their sons. And every description there tells us how long he lived before he had a son, how long he lived all of his life, and then it says he died. Every paragraph, every description of a man's life ends with the phrase, and he died, except for one. His name was Enoch, but God took him up to heaven, so he's not the hope of the world either. So the people are waiting. They're waiting for a deliverer. They're waiting for a fulfillment of God's promise. 850 years after Adam, there came a man named Lamech. And Lamech, understanding God's promise, probably through what was passed on as tradition, was especially hopeful and confident. Look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. Genesis 5, 28, it says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech is confident that this son is going to undo the curse on the earth. He's going to bring, finally, he's going to bring relief and rest. And that's what the name Noah means. Relief, rest. The downfall of man resulted in widespread violence and rebellion. 
but Noah trusted in God. You have one man who's righteous in a corrupted world. And what do you do when some app just stops working on your phone? What do you do when your phone freezes or your computer freezes? What is, I don't know, the statistic. Every IT person will tell you the first thing you do is turn it off, turn it back on. That's the most common solution to the problem. You need to, you need to restart it, and that'll fix it, hopefully. But that's exactly what God does with Noah. Because of the downfall of man, because of widespread violence and rebellion, God kills every single person on the earth in a global flood except for Noah and his three sons and their wives. Jump over with me to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. The flood is now complete. The waters have retreated. Noah comes out of the ark, and God repeats to him what he said at creation. Genesis 9, 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So God adds the wonderful blessing of eating meat, but he gives Noah the same charge, the same calling, the same design that he gave to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over it for the glory of God. The design hasn't changed. We're just starting all over again. So was Noah the start of a new mankind that was going to walk in righteousness in accordance with God's holiness and love? No. Was Noah the promised redeemer, the promised deliverer of man? No. You see that very soon after. He subdues the earth, he plants a vineyard, and then he gets drunk. And he disgraces himself. And then he wakes up and he curses one of his own sons because of wickedness. The downfall is still there. There's still a bug in the programming. And generations go by. Genesis 10 and 11 tell us the children of Noah and, and the nations that were formed. But the people refused to spread out. Rather than obey and represent God and rather than give him glory, they made life all about themselves. They built a monument to their name. And so God brings another judgment. Genesis 11. He confuses their language. He forces them to spread out. And things just don't look good. More judgment. And as the nations are formed, nations are beginning to forget or ignore the divine instruction that began with Adam. Nations were now worshiping the own, their own gods, the gods that they had invented. But the deliverance of man isn't lost. And it isn't forgotten. The hope of mankind is still there, but not because of man. It's because of God and his faithfulness. So God decided that he would form a nation of his own. 
This nation would see the hope forward. This nation would be his kingdom on the earth. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. God calls a man in the line of Noah named Abram, whom we now know as Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. He lived in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The design remains. The downfall is still present. But God has chosen a nation. And through that nation, deliverance will come. The global curse will become a global blessing. This is the story of humanity. And it's coming through Abraham. But if you're going to turn one man into a nation, one of the things you need is land. Another thing you need is people. So God sends Abraham to a new land. At the end of Genesis 13, Abraham arrives at that land with his wife, with his possessions and his servants. And God says to him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. Here's where my nation will be, says the Lord. So the hope of Abraham is starting to be fleshed out. He has land that's been promised to him. Descendants have been promised to him. And what makes the promise to Abraham special is that some of Abraham's descendants will be royalty. The nation as a whole will have a royal calling corporately, but, but there's also personal royalty that will come in kings. I'll jump over to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1 says Abraham is 99 years old. Look at Genesis 17 verse 6. God says to him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant, my promise between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They're separated from God, and God says, no, now I have a nation, and I will come, and I will dwell with those people. The curse will be undone. It's an amazing promise. Blessing will come to the world through a nation that will come from Abraham. And as the story continues, Abraham has descendants, so his, his family tree is growing. But God, one generation at a time, specifies his promise. Jump down to verse 19. Genesis 17, 19. God names one of Abraham's sons. 
Abraham, he's old. His wife is old. He doubts that they could have a son. Genesis 17, 19. God said to him, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his, his offspring after him. The hope of Abraham is being passed. It now is the hope of Isaac. The, the scope is narrowing just a little bit. And in the next generation, it's going to get narrowed again because the promise passes now to Isaac's son named Jacob. Listen to what God says to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. God is saying, I'm, I'm the same God. I'm continuing the promise I gave to your dad and to your grandpa. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. He's repeating the promise. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Same promise. Passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. God continues, Genesis 28. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God says to him, Jacob, I will fulfill the promise I made to your ancestors. Deliverance will come. Many of you know Jacob received a new name from God. He was named, renamed Israel. And he was blessed with 12 sons. The final portion of Genesis focused on one of those sons. His name is Joseph. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. But he is not the one from whom deliverance will come. Jump to me, with me to almost the end of Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. They're in Egypt now. God preserved them during a famine. He took them to Egypt. Jacob is now dying. But God gives him a prophetic vision, we could say, but more than that, it's a blessing. And he's going to bestow these blessings on his sons. His first son was Reuben. The next two are Simeon and Levi. Reuben was marked by sexual morality. Simeon and Levi were marked by violence. But notice what he says to his fourth son, Judah. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Picture a, a headlock, if you will. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, that is, that is the instrument of, of a king, the, of the expression of a king's rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So the hope and the deliverance of man is going to come through Abraham. It's going to come through Isaac. It's going to come through Jacob. And now we know it's going to come through Judah. Through the line of Judah, a lion will come. 
A king will come to rule over the earth and to fulfill God's promise, not just to Abraham, but all the way back in his promise to Adam and Eve. This is the history of mankind. It follows the history of the nation of Israel. More and more generations pass, and God is faithful. He preserves the sons of Jacob. They're now known as the nation of Israel because through them a savior will come to rule the earth and to conquer Satan. He'll come to, to undo the curse. So they're in Egypt. They started out as about 70 people. They spend about 430 years in Egypt and they grow to be about 2 million. Now you're, you're ready to make a nation. But they're not in their land. They were there initially. They left. They need to go back. They need to, they've got the people, they need to go back to the land, and they need a law, they need instruction. And so God provides for them a deliverer to free them from slavery in Egypt, and his name is Moses. Not only does he free them from Egypt, but he gives them the law of God. He tells them, this is how you are to live so that you would represent God on the earth. This is God's message to Israel from Exodus 19, verses five and six. God says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you want to know what the true and living God is like, look to Israel. That's what God said. The way to salvation is is through Israel. I want this nation to be lifted up in righteousness and glory, and the world will see that I'm a wise and good God, and they will come to know my salvation. It's an amazing promise because what Adam failed to do and what Noah failed to do, now Israel is being called to do. You will be my representatives on the earth. You will fulfill the design of God. Our hope, the hope of the world was in Israel. Did they do that? No. You don't get, they have to last 40 years in the wilderness because they refuse to obey God. While Moses is up receiving the law of God, they're worshiping a golden calf. They fail over and over again. Israel is incapable, because of the downfall of man, they're incapable of fulfilling the purpose God gave them. Israel is unfaithful, but God is faithful. Deliverance will come. The promise of God will be fulfilled. So through the story of their years in the wilderness, through the the battles and the enemies they face, We have constant reminders of the sin of man and their downfall, but we also have reminders of God's promise. He hasn't forgotten. There's a prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It comes from the mouth of a wicked man named Balaam. But through Balaam, God says, a star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter, a king, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. What what does that mean? It means a king will come from Israel who will destroy all her enemies. 
and it will undo the curse. That prophecy was given before Israel could make it back to the promised land, but God was giving them hope, reminding them of his promise. You will be victorious. A king will come. Many of the Israelites, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, died in the wilderness. They had lost hope. They had lost faith. But the faithful believed this message. I've got one final passage I want you to look at with me. Deuteronomy chapter 34. This is the final chapter in the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The last chapter in my Bible, the heading is the death of Moses. It's the capstone on his life. Moses, just so you know, was a Levite. He's not from the tribe of Judah. So Moses could not have been this promised deliverer, but being under his leadership gave Israel a picture of what it's like to be under a great leader. Look at Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, almost the end of the book. It says, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. On the one hand, it's a lament. Moses is gone. We've never seen another man like him. But on the other hand, it's also a hope and an anticipation. This was Israel's heart. How amazing would it be if we could see a new Moses, a prophet who speaks the truth of God, teaching the people, a man who performs miracles, helping and providing for the people, a leader who frees the people from the tyranny of wickedness, a savior who will undo the downfall and the destruction of mankind. When will that man come? We'll pick up the story next week. But what a blessing for us on the other side of history to know the answer. We know who the deliverer is. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the new Moses that Israel was waiting for. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. We should look around and we should shake our head as we see what's going on out there and in here. Corporately and individually, we have fallen so far from the design and the purpose of God. We cannot live up to our calling. We fall short of the glory of God. We've been corrupted. We deserve judgment. But God has given us the only answer to the wickedness in our own hearts and in the wickedness in the world. It's in his son, Jesus Christ, who died to pay the price of sin and who resurrected to showcase his victory. He came and he provided the only solution that this world can offer. He came to the world 
to save the world. The, the world's problems aren't going to be fixed by an election. They're not going to be fixed by us corporately just saying we're going to try harder. The world's problems are only fixed through Christ who came to conquer sin. And as Israel was waiting for him, we wait for him because he'll come again. And he'll make his victory final. And for that reason, for that, because of that reminder, Christmas is for us, it should be, a season of joy and hope and love and unity as we await the coming of our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are again grateful for these reminders of the story of humanity. It's so easy for us to get caught up in our own story. There are things that matter so much to us and we very easily push out your story. You've called us to enjoy good things, to enjoy culture, to enjoy a cup of coffee, to enjoy marriage, to enjoy children, to enjoy family, to enjoy food. But all these things, whether we eat or drink, are to the glory of the God who made us. We recognize that we are so easily distracted and we are corrupted. We make life about ourselves so many times. We don't showcase your holiness. We don't showcase your compassion, but we are grateful to know that deliverance has come in our Lord Jesus Christ. Left to ourselves, we would be lost, but he has brought us salvation. Give us humility in that truth, but give us joy and unity as we work to proclaim that message to all who will hear. People from every tribe and tongue and nation, no matter how far they may be from you, you will rescue if they will repent and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray his name be exalted and that you continue to work in our hearts and the hearts of those who don't know him. We ask for the glory of Christ. Amen.